Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Be to Christ. Thank you, Scarrett. Thank you for reading it twice. Um, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Christ Press. Uh, my name is Paul Lim. I serve here as scholar in residence. And um, it's uh, always a great delight to open up the Word of God. And uh, if you would like, uh, I would like to invite all of us to a word of prayer as we begin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. And as, you, as your word is proclaimed and explained, may your Holy Spirit open up our hearts and prompt our wills to listen to and find the light in the word of the Lord. Pray these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> So who or what comes to your mind immediately when I say the word enemy? While my most ardent hope is that your mind will draw blank with the question I've just raised, who's your enemy? I'm less optimistic than what my hope would lead me to believe. For some people, especially around this time of March Madness, the unforgettable name of Christian Leitner might be a candidate for an enemy. Especially if you're from the University of Kentucky or UNC Chapel Hill background. Mr. Leitner's theatricality and superb athleticism was in full display when the Duke Blue Devils won the back-to-back NCAA Men's Basketball Championship just a couple of decades ago. The mere fact that I'm even mentioning Christian Leitner or that I called him Mr. Leitner, might have made me one of your own enemies. All jocular jabs aside, to have enemies is to be human, almost. To paraphrase the line from Alexander Pope that offers a keen insight into the human condition, to err is human, to forgive divine. I'm not particularly interested in who your enemies are, or whether you have them or not, I'm assuming that you and I are finding this text just read for us, deeply resonating with us, if only because this text troubles our sensibilities about the way we like to manage our feelings, hurts, relationships, both whole, repaired, mangled and broken, for good or forever. Before we get into the media part of the sermon, I'd like to offer a kind of a prefatory comment. When I got the calendar of, okay, what am I preaching and so on, When I saw that I'm preaching on this text, my immediate reaction was not, oh, great. My immediate reaction is, oh, man, (laughs) I'm preaching on a text that I find so, what's the best word, uh, that trips me up. It's one of those texts that you read and you say, preacher, do it yourself. Can you do this? Can I do this? So my approach this morning is not as someone who has gotten it all figured out. 
Oh yeah, me, I love my enemies, no problem. Just like that, one, two, three. It's like doing yoga. No, I never do yoga, so I have a hard time with this particular text. But as a community, as we wrestle with the call of Jesus, the fact that Christ is the one who loves us far more than we can ever love ourselves, and he issues forth these commands, loving commands that are seemingly and absolutely impossible to keep, or it left, or we left to our own human devices. So we'll get to that. As we all agree, whether in first grade or hanging out with grandchildren, whether with lots of friends or hardly with them at all, life is about relationships, isn't it? To be on this journey toward relational wholeness and healing means we'll experience times when people leave us, sometimes empty-handed, other times bitter, and yet crying for justice. So I was thinking a lot about this sermon this week. I normally do more writing than thinking, but with this one, I was thinking a lot. In particular, I was thinking about the word enemy, and I was asking myself, who was my first enemy that I can remember? Right? Third grade it is. Third grade. So that's what? I'm about 50 this year or so. That's, wow, about 41 years ago. Back in Seoul, Korea, where I grew up, I had a friend who turned into an enemy. So what's that word for kids now? Or is it frenemy? So it used to be a friend turned into an enemy. He was tormenting me by making fun of me, this, that, and other. You know, the funny thing is, and sad thing is, for 41 years of my life, ever since that friend had become frenemy, I never really had that much to think about my frenemy or friend. And as I'm just getting ahead of myself a little bit, this week, I prayed for my friend or frenemy that I had not seen nor heard from for about four decades. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes as to why Jesus says that that is a real true pathway of discipleship as well as truly gospel-driven healing. Like I said, I grew up in South Korea until I was 15. And as you look around the world, there are many countries for whom the neighboring country is not a neighbor but in fact, enemy. Think about the relationship between Tutsis and Hutus and the Rwandan genocide. Think about Armenia and Turkey. Think about a number of different countries. Think about Korea. When I was growing up, we were told that there is an immediate enemy that you dare never forget, and that is communism, and most immediately to the north of South Korea, North Korea. And so I grew up with the presence of enemies and the real presence of enmity. And one of the things that the gospel of Jesus Christ has done for me, at least, when I became a Christian as a junior in, in, in college, was that my understanding of who my enemy was began to shift. Although that shift happening all at once also became a gradual thing. And as I'll get to that in just a few minutes. In today's sermon, we come to these powerful and penetrating words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. These are powerful because we find ourselves crushed in some way by the weight of it and what it calls to do and be. And penetrating because it also shows us the path toward true humanization through the example and sacrifice set before, the, before us by the one who alone could love his enemies 
to the uttermost. These are, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it, words lifted to cosmic proportions. Some might complain right at the outset that these are simply and absolutely impossible and impractical stuff of idealistic pipe dreams. As Dr. King said further, far from being the most pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love especially for enemies. So let's make a few observations that will help us get through the text together this morning. One, Jesus assumes that his disciples had enemies. He doesn't say, if you possibly have enemies. No, he says, love your enemies. Two, and we'll unpack these as we go on. Notice also he does not say, like your enemies, like, like somebody on Facebook or whatever, but love them. You like something, which means there is an emotional and affectionate connection but Jesus says, love your enemies, and we'll see what that looks like. Third thing I'd like to uh, see together here with you is that the one concrete way to love our enemies is to pray for them. Enemy love and prayer. And fourth thing we see here is that there is a connection between our enemy love and our identity as children of the Heavenly Father. So we'll unpack these momentarily together. Loving our enemies seems quite countercultural. That doesn't seem like a formula for building a successful nation, corporation, institution, or family, or individual life, or does it? I don't know about you, but it seems that in the last few years, our nation has become much more divided, much more polarized. It seems that the word enemy conjures up images of those that we don't see eye to eye politically, those, uh, those that we don't see eye to eye culturally and socioeconomically and racially, and it goes on and on and on. We realize that we are living in a divided country that desires true greatness, true healing, true recovery. We also, some of us, desire that our country in its own pathway that it's been on would like to continue in this track. So we find ourselves divided. Some of us like watching Fox News. Others of us watch MSNBC. Cannot understand why the other would watch that when there's a perfect alternative for better news. And so on and so on it goes. And it's not just true outside. It is true here at Christ Press, which in some ways is really a wonderful, wonderful phenomenon that there's a real gospel-driven diversity that we get to witness and celebrate right here at Christ Press. But all of that means at the same time that the word enemy has much greater currency, cultural and existential currency, in our midst than perhaps it did here in the first century as well. The first century Jewish listeners of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had their enemies for sure. And one of the immediate ones were the Romans, right? They, were, they had, through their military incursion, had taken over the national sovereignty of the people of Israel, and they were the public enemy number one. So we need to wrestle with what to do with enemies. Many of us do not have enemies of this kind of grotesque proportions. Most of us do our managing of our enemies by our creation of distance and apathy. We don't think about them. We don't deal with them. But Jesus has a different answer for our ways of dealing with frenemies. So let's take a listen. People might hurt us and never apologize for it. 
We might hurt other people and never apologize for it. People may hound us and see that as their life's goal and joy and even reason for existence. One way to love our enemy is this. When given the perfect opportunity for an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, take the way of Jesus. Let's take the way of Jesus who perfected the law and fulfilled the letter and spirit of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. Remember Joseph? Joseph in the book of Genesis? Yes, that Joseph of the amazing Technicolor dream coat. His brothers, out of vengeful jealousy for Joseph's admittedly idiotic and brush, bragging about being loved more than these brothers, sell him into slavery. But in poetic justice, they come with cap in hand to ask for food from the Egyptian prime minister. Guess who that was? Joseph. And Joseph was the one who ultimately revealed himself as the one sold into slavery, but now in position of power, privilege, and prominence. But it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, Fear not, my brothers, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph missed absolutely no words that his brothers did intend to harm him, and they did harm him. But God had an overriding plan that outstripped our enmity. The enmity of our brothers could not overcome the providential protection of God for Joseph, thus his fraternal love for them. Not an eye for an eye. You did harm me. I'm not going to harm you because I see the hand of God in my life. Let's come much closer to our context. In Dr. King's Dexter Avenue sermon that I've just referenced earlier, he talks about President Lincoln's relationship with someone who really hated him and spoke publicly about how ill-equipped Lincoln was for the job of presidency. That someone is named Edwin Stanton. History buffs may know something about Stanton. In spite of all that Stanton had said about Lincoln, all negatively, both in private and public, in speech and in print, after all of that, when it came time for Lincoln to choose his secretary of war, he picked Stanton to everyone's consternation and chagrin, including that of Stanton. Lincoln did not retaliate hatred and enmity with the same currency of loathing and bile. He tore down the wall of hostility with love, so much so that when Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton made this powerful eulogy and said, Lincoln now belongs to the ages. You know what it is really kind of interesting about Christianity and this particular saying of Jesus? is this. The whole concept of loving your enemies is not unique to Christianity. Okay? So the whole concept of enemy love is not unique to Christianity. However, however, what is really unique about Christianity is that even the most critical scholars of New Testament would say, yes, they would, you know the, how there was Jesus seminar that said, Jesus did not say this, Jesus could not have taught this. Even the most critical of scholars say that Jesus, at the core of Jesus' teaching and mission, was loving your enemies. So what is really interesting and important about early Christianity was that at the forefront of their identity matrix was enemy love. Because Jesus enters into a context which was fraught with enmity. The people of Israel were longing for the Messianic deliverer to kick the Romans out because they hated these enemies called the Romans. And Jesus walks into this context and talks about loving your enemies 
No wonder it was both simultaneously popular, but also paradoxically kind of unpopular at the same time. So it wasn't an easy thing, but there is a uniqueness about this enemy love in Christianity because Jesus made a focal point of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to receive the love of God that was transmitted through the the incarnate life of Jesus, his death and resurrection, both of which the death and resurrection was for the enemies of God and the resurrection was the justification for the enemies of God. The second thing I'd like to note uh, with you this morning is that Jesus does not say that we are to like our enemies, but rather love them. What on earth is the difference between like and love? One of the persons who had to think a lot about enemies, especially in the war context in the Second World War, was a Lutheran pastor who resisted the Nazi regime's atrocities and genocidal insanity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his 1988 sermon in Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21, which we will read at the end of our sermon, he confessed that regarding the question of the relation of the Christian to enemies, we are so completely without understanding, he says, and left our own devices, our ideas are so completely perverted. When you confront your enemy, he says, think first of all about you being an enemy of God first. You are an enemy of God until reconciled by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And think further about God's compassion towards you. When we look to ourselves, we find our anger, resentment, bitterness toward toward our enemies not disappearing, but even boiling over. Thus, we need to remember who God is and how God has dealt with God's own enemies. In Romans chapter 5, 10, it says most emphatically, that while we are God's enemies, still God's enemies, we are nonetheless reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Paul makes it very clear. He minces no words. We are not neutrally predisposed toward God. In fact, the essence of sin, right? Friends, you know what the essence of sin is? Essence of sin is not some kind of deviant behavior. It's not some kind of erroneous belief. The essence of sin is, listen, It is our declaration of independence from God. The essence of sin is saying, I can do it my way. It is a declaration of our self-sufficiency, not sufficiency of Christ. It's I can do it my way. Sin is not primarily and firstly about behavior. No, it is in fact our pride of saying, our pride of saying that my righteousness is sufficient. Sufficiency of self, not sufficiency of Christ. I can do in my way. I can see, I can judge, I can taste according to my own desires and design. Guess who did that? Adam and Eve. When they saw that fruit and saw that it was desirable, both for taste and also for gaining wisdom, they took it and ate it, even though God made it explicitly and abundantly clear. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They were declaring their independence of decision, autonomy of decision-making power apart from and away from God. So we became enemies of God. Yet God did not treat us according to our own sin's desert. He treated us, in fact, the opposite way. So the Lord tells us, since you're the children of my father and your father, be like him, behave like him. 
So many of us are familiar with Victor Hugo, especially his masterpiece that talks about the triumph of love, forgiveness, and the revolutionary power of the human spirit, Les Miserables, right? Les Mis, in short. Remember Jean Valjean? Who was his enemy number one? Who was it? Javert. That's right, Javert. Inspector Javert, right? And because if you remember the musical, the movie, or the novel, however you have interacted with this masterpiece, from the beginning of the beginning of Lamez until almost the end, we see the haunting specter and casting this large shadow of Inspector Javert. 24601, don't you forget me, he says. And you know how. Jean Valjean meets his sworn enemy. Where do they meet in the final scene, one of the final scenes? They meet in the Parisian sewer system, right? And then Javert, I mean, Jean Valjean has a perfect opportunity finally to get rid of Inspector Javert. But remember what he does? What does Jean Valjean do? Does he kill him? No, he lets him go. He shoots into midair and then just leaves him there and then goes and tells his colleagues that, yes, he's dead. And therefore, leaving Javert in this complete chaos, confusion of his own identity. Because he garnered the sense of righteousness because of Jean Valjean. My way is the way of the Lord, he sings, and his way is the way of the darkness. And he sings to the Lord and says, Lord, let me find him. And so Javert really comes to this point of just complete confusion because he thought that he was righteous and Jean Valjean was the wicked and unrighteous. But because of Jean Valjean's love of his enemy, love and not like. So the question is this, do you think Jean Valjean ever liked Javert? Do you think Jean Valjean ever thought, yeah, I really would like this guy. I really like him. I want to hang out with him next time we see each other. Absolutely not. Jean Valjean loathed him. Longed to be as far away from Inspector Javert as possible. Yet when that moment came, he let him go. And you know why? You might remember why. Because Jean Valjean, after he was released on parole, he goes to this priest's house for overnight lodging and food. And in the middle of the night, the, the priest is rudely awakened by all the commotion going on outside because Jean Valjean had returned the favor of this priest with thievery. And he was on his way out, and he got caught red-handed. And when the priest says, you know what? This man spoke truly that I've given all of these things to him. Thus, you can leave now, leaving the confrontation between the priest and Jean Valjean. And, and the priest says, you know, I purchase your soul with these things. Therefore, live your life. Live your life worthy of this divine transaction, divine redemption. See, Jean Valjean understood what it means to experience that enmity turned into love. And his life is beginning to shift ever so imperceptibly, yet really, and he becomes a changed man, therefore leaving this guy, Javert, in his act of love. But he didn't like the guy, right? But you know what? He didn't like Javert, but he did forgive Javert and let him go. Feelings may not come, but love is a decision and a volitional movement. I will to love you. 
As we move to the third observation, we see that one of the concrete proofs of our enemy love is prayer for them. What does Jesus say? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Praying for those who identify as your enemies. Sometimes that is all you can do. Like I said, I was thinking a lot about this sermon. I was thinking about people that I knew who didn't like me. I'm sure you have some people like that, at least one. I was thinking about, okay, who? So I was thinking with the, I was kind of faced with a dilemma. What do I do? Do I call them up and say, you know, I know you're one of my enemies, but can I tell you that I'm praying for you? That's not a cool thing. They may even get more upset. So I said, okay, I'll just maybe just pray for them on my own. You know, and then there's something that really happened this week, concretely. I was at a breakfast this week, and I saw this, I, this, this person that I would call a frenemy. We were friends, but we're not friends anymore. I saw this friend at this breakfast, and I was thinking about, okay, I, I'm preaching on this thing this week. I actually have to try to act on this. So with fear and trembling, I walked up to this, this friend. And, I, and this person was talking to a group of his friends, and um, I was waiting till that person was done, and I just said, well, okay, I was standing there for a few minutes, and I just basically at the end said, hey, how are you? It's great to see you. And you know what my friend of me said? He turns around and says, hi, nice to meet you. There's no way that my friend could not recognize me. We were friends for a few years. And at that moment, I felt a powerful diss. I'm walking away, shrinking away from this breakfast. And I said to myself, Lord, you said pray for those who persecute you. I don't know whether this friend of me was persecuting me, but I felt totally dejected, rejected. And all I could say was, Lord, please be with this person as this person is thinking about the next phase of their life and their career. And I really want the very best for that person. Did I like that exchange? Absolutely not. Would I have done without it if I could help it? Absolutely. Wouldn't you? And you know what? This is what one thing I experienced. One of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars is a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner, and his writings have helped a lot. He says these things. He says, with enemies, Christian discipleship comes to his ultimate litmus test. And he says, the strongest motive for keeping Jesus' hard commands is this, and that is, when we try to keep these commands of Christ, and even our bumbling efforts and failing and so on, we experience God's fatherly love in a way we did not experience that love before. You see, around my home, my love and my nice gestures are usually reciprocated. When I say to my wife, I love you, I usually hear something back, mostly positive. Most, mostly positive. I say to my son, I love you, and I usually hear something mostly positive. I usually hear something nice back. So I am kind of conditioned to being kind of in this relationality of reciprocity, meaning I do something nice and you do something nice to me. 
But the Bible says, our text today says, pray for those who aren't going to reciprocate in the nice way. In that little act of discipleship, in that little bumbling effort to follow Jesus at that breakfast, I said hi to my frenemy. He said, nice to meet you, and turned back and resumed this conversation. I felt this big. As I'm walking away, I, was, I had a mixture of anger, I had a mixture of confusion, sorrow, but also I was thankful. I was thankful because I said to Jesus, Lord, thank you for teaching me that following you isn't always going to be easy. You see what I mean? Maybe we have kind of conditioned ourselves to believing that following Jesus is just a wonderful story. Life is great. And then I experienced that maybe it isn't. But in that moment of sadness and dejection, I also felt this connection and closeness and proximity to Jesus, our wounded healer, our crucified Lord and Savior. Fourth thing to observe here is the connection between enemy love and our identity as children of God. So who is God here in this text? It ends, this text ends by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our God is perfect. So the word that is rendered as perfect is teloyoi, which means certainly perfect or perfection, but also at the same time, when applied to humans, it could be having reached a point of maturity, right? Having reached a point of maturity or apex in your growth pattern. So how and in what ways is God perfect? In all ways, of course, but in this context, God's perfection is demonstrated in His love. In His love, not only for those who love God, but precisely for the enemy love that God demonstrates. And Jesus tells us that in a mundane way in verse 45. He causes His Son to rise, what? On the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So what Jesus is saying is that through the act of providence, in God's providential care of creation, God doesn't just send rain on the righteous and those who deserve it, because in some ways, if that is the criterion, then nobody will get rain in some instances. Jesus says the Heavenly Father that you are to emulate because you already belong to Him sends, lets the sun rise on both the good and the evil. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say everybody's good and there's no evil person. He says, no, no, there are these categories of human existence, and I'm telling you that our, your heavenly Father, my heavenly Father, treats them both lovingly and indiscriminately. So God causes the sun to shine regardless of your ethical index and moral vector, and that God sends the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteousness. And the unrighteousness. Then if that's who you say God is and who you say you are, then you can't merely be circumscribing your love to the narrow affection compass of the tax collectors. Notice with me in verse 46. But if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Jesus says, look, if you only love those who are going to love you back, that's so human. That is so ordinary. But what I'm calling you to is a life that is surely inclusive of your human existence, but you can aspire beyond that because I, who is fully God, became fully man, fully human, so that you will know what it means to become like me. 
You know someone who is not merely like God, but someone who is God and who loves the enemies even unto death. But here Jesus also shows an absolutely mundane application. Are you ready for this? Look with me in verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even Gentiles or pagans do that? Okay, let me unpack this. This is very, very important because this may be a concrete takeaway from this sermon for all of us. Greeting people who are not your brothers and sisters. From this context, especially since Jesus follows that up with saying, do not even pagans and Gentiles do that, he means blood relations. Meaning this, saying hi to people who don't look like you, who may not like you at all, who may not know you, Jesus says, come on now, if you really understand what it means to be loved by the God who perfects enemy love, and that you were his enemy before that you remember, then you should say hi to people that you don't normally say hi to. Sort of anticlimactic, but let me reiterate this. You know, do you say hi to people? Do you, say, do you normally say hi to people that you, you like and you know? So before moving to Nashville 11 years ago, my wife and I lived in Boston for five years. And, uh, you know, almost a year or two after I moved from Boston to Nashville, I was talking to a former colleague of mine, and I was telling him that, hey, you know, the Southerners are really, really nice. And you know, you know what he said? He's like, yeah, yeah, they're only superficially nice. They may say hi to you, but you don't really don't know what the Southerners are thinking. I said, yeah, you know what, man? Let me tell you something. Between superficial nasty and superficial nice, I'll pick superficial nice any day of the week and then some. <laughs> you don't have to clap. That's not meant to be. <laughs> no, really, though, right? I mean, I love Boston, but one thing, and before in Boston, my wife and I lived in England for four years, where it's even in some ways, I mean, I love the, Eng the English, but in some ways, they're kind of shy, right? So when you see people, like you're walking down the hallway, when you see somebody at the perfect time, you, you know how to look down, and then in the perfect time, when they're past you, you look up and go about your walking business. So you basically are conditioned, culturally conditioned, to say hi to people that you know. I don't know whether it's because the South is more of the buckle of the Bible belt or whatever, but I was really astounded to see people say hi to me, like when I'm walking on the street. And I remember saying one thing, like, I'm wondering, like, do I know that person? That person seemed to say hi in a way that seems to indicate that she might know me, but you don't want to do it. Like, do I know you? And because always fearing the answer, like, no, I don't know you. I'm just being nice. See, Jesus is saying something really, really mundane, and yet at the same time, if your discipleship with Jesus is worth the salt, then we have to take this with utmost seriousness. Who do you say hi to at church? Who do you say hi to at the Y? Who do you say hi to at, I don't know, um, Kroger, Publix, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, you take your pick. Aldi, I don't know, whatever. Who do you say hi to? Do you say hi to people? And as, as my mom always taught me, saying hi, being nice is always free, and it may come back with an interest. You see? Saying hi, Jesus says, if you only say hi to your brothers, aren't even pagans doing that? You see, one of the litmus tests of our discipleship is your disposition of embrace. You know, I was talking with a colleague of mine who is in theology, and she said that, um, you know, she visited this church for about a month, and she decided not to go back. Do you know why? 
You know why? As a corollary. You know what? One of the number one reasons of why people don't return to the church after they visited? Guess what? Because people don't say hi. That's right. People don't say hi. For this scholar, you know, a woman of great erudition, she said, Paul, you know, the reason why I didn't go back to that church is they, their theology was great, their, their music was wonderful, their literature is fantastic, but nobody said hi. And I said, come on. I said, yes, nobody said hi for a month. I couldn't quite ask her, why, why didn't you say hi? Because most visitors, I mean, you've been a visitor. How many of you have been a visitor here? I've been a visitor here. And one of the reasons why my wife and I and Christian decided to stick around at this church was people kept saying hi. They're always saying, are you here for the first time? I said, no, I've been here for a year, please, you know. But I really liked the fact that they were asking me, are you new here? I mean, there was at least a desire to include and embrace. One of the key reasons why some people don't come back to these churches that they may visit, including Christ's Press, is people may not say hi. That really does matter. That leads me to my last point of our conversation, perfections of God and the maturity of God's children. You see, friends, God is in the business of transforming us into God's likeness. God does this by reminding us that there is an ultimate home for us. Jesus said this in John 14, that he's preparing a place for us. It is our eternal home. I was reminded of home this week at this breakfast. You see, I'm not a huge country fan at all, country music fan at all. I grew up in Seoul and also in Philadelphia and lived in the Northeast all my life until coming here 11 years ago. I think I remember listening to a Travis, uh, Randy Travis song as a freshman in college. I liked it, but that was enough. I said, okay, that's fine. So my repertoire was rather short. But at this breakfast, I heard this country song that brought me to tears because I was reminded of my and our eternal home. But also I was reminded of the home that I grew up in in Seoul, Korea, this two-story yellow brick home. And it's a song that um, Tom Douglas, who may be here right now, wrote. And apparently, because apparently I didn't know it, I never heard that song until last week. It was one of the best songs for that year. It's called The House That Built Me. You know that song. You all know that song, right? Right, I'm sure you do. I, I didn't know it until just six days ago. And that song just really blew me away. The words, part of the words are here. I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out here, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself. If I could just come in, I swear I'll leave. Won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. The last two lines just really grabbed onto my soul. I won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. Memory. We are much more likely to remember our enemies and our friends in many ways. We remember the bad things that were done to us and the good things that were done to us. As I listened to that song for the first time in my life, played by Tom Douglas himself, I was immediately reminded of John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is a really poetic kind of you know, masterpiece that talks about the, the paradise that Adam and Eve lived in and humanity had dwelt in and lost, but at the same time, God is in the business of redeeming us and regaining paradise for us. We all took some faint memories of this paradise we once dwelt in, that we take nothing but a memory from the house that God built. It is that memory and yearning, that memory lost and yearning that we have that bring us actually to the bottle sometimes, 
that bring us to different ways of experimenting with our sadness and depression and nothingness. It is perhaps what brings us to the internet screen for our voyeuristic desires. It is that desire for closure and communion. We come to that Father of perfection and God of perfect mercies, justice, and love. Let me finish by reading these words from a person whose professional passion was indistinguishable from hatred. But when he met the perfect lover of enemies, his life changed. I'm talking about Saul of Tarsus or Paul the Apostle. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, he writes. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on the head of your enemy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we come to the table of the Lord, we see a perfect demonstration of God not being overcome by evil, but overturning it and triumphing over it with good. Through the body of Jesus, broken, the blood of Christ shed for our salvation to make us, who are enemies of God, into God's own friends. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this poignant reminder that we were your enemies, but you loved us. Therefore, you, having purchased our soul for yourself, call us to love our enemies. Humanly speaking, it is utterly and absolutely impossible, but we take great comfort in knowing the fact that the Sermon on the Mount, indeed all of the Old Testament and the New, could only be fulfilled in the one human life of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it, and as we come to your table, help us to find great comfort and solace in that wondrous and liberating fact. In your name we pray. Amen.